Um, you'll need a Bible, so if you haven't got one, I'm sure somebody close to you will have one as uh, we explore God's Word together tonight. Um, I'd like you to turn to two passages in the Bible. They're both in the New Testament. The first is found in Matthew chapter 24, and the second is found in a letter that Paul wrote to a church in a place called Thessalonica, and it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Matthew chapter 24 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll read from Matthew's gospel first. Verse 36. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together. One will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an unexpected hour. Now turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, please. Verse 13. I'll give you a chance to find it. It's, a, it's not a very big book. It can be difficult to find. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. History is not cyclical. It doesn't go round and round and round and round and round and repeat itself over and over and over and over again. At least Jews and Christians do not believe that it is cyclical. Christians and Jewish people believe that history has a beginning, a middle, and an end. 
and that the only thing that sits beyond history is the only thing from which existence and matter and life itself could come, and that is God. One of the great challenges for those who do not believe in a creator or intelligent design or in something that has ushered in the world as we understand it today is the explanation of where it came from. Most physicists, most scientists, all physicists that I am aware of, acknowledge that there was a beginning moment in history and time that somewhere back in the very beginnings of our understanding of the created world, something happened that created the world in which we now live. That moment, that moment of creation means that it also has a moment of expiration. Scientists and physicists will tell you they're not sure where that will happen or how that will happen. But if one acknowledges that there is a beginning, a moment when there was nothing and then there was something, then you're also acknowledging by, um, by, by scientific inquiry, let alone anything else, that something that has a beginning will eventually have an end, particularly if it's dependent on life and energy and so forth. Christians believe that outside of that created world, there has to be something that created it. And by dint of the fact that it was outside of it, it has to be uncreated. We believe that that thing is God. That that power, that force, is the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe. Scientists struggle to understand how the universe can come from nothing. How it can just begin. And it itself is not eternal. It doesn't go on forever and ever. So if one acknowledges, as Christians do, that the world has a beginning and a middle and an end, and you are in the middle of it somewhere, like me, then what does the end look like is a pretty important question. Not perhaps because it will happen tomorrow, but if you are a, a thinker, if you're someone that tries to figure out life, then you'll want to know how this great thing began and where it will end. Philosophy has some of the big questions of life. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Why does it matter? What is my purpose in the earth? What's wrong with the world? How do I fix it? Christianity answers all of those questions in different ways, centered around one person, Jesus Christ who he was, why he came, and what he has done in the world. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn back for a moment to Genesis chapter 1, where I'm going to read just five verses for you. This is all an introduction to what I really want to speak to you about this evening. These are the great beginning. Genesis means beginnings. It means birthings. That's what the word means. That's why it's called Genesis, because the first word of the book is Genesis in Greek, in the beginning. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters, or the breath of God. It's the same word in Hebrew. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God created the, separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. 
I'm not going to go into all of that because we don't have time and it's not the purpose of my message to you this evening. But in those first five verses is evidence from a Judeo-Christian perspective of the beginning of light, the beginning of matter, and the beginning of time. The great big scientific, where did they come from, is answered in five verses at the beginning of the Christian and the Jewish Bible. We believe they came from God. That's the beginning of the story. What about the end of the story? What happens in it? Turn with me to the very last chapter of the Bible for just a moment. Revelation chapter 22. Verse 12 and 13. Jesus Christ is speaking to an old man called John. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay to everyone according to their work. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. So whatever the end looks like, we have a picture of God at the beginning and God at the end, unchanged and unchangeable because he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-seeing. I could point you to two other passages in Scripture, or three or four, but I don't want to this evening ask you to turn to them. But one of those is is an encounter we will return to later on where Jesus Christ was being asked by his disciples, what's going to happen at the end of time? We'll explore it a little in a moment or two. And he explained some things to them. But then in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, he said this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my promises will never pass away. So however the end of this story looks, what Jesus says will not be changed. It will be fulfilled. It can be relied on. It's true. In the New Testament, two people in different contexts pointed to Jesus as the person who was somehow present at the beginning and is present at the end of time. One of them was a man called John. He wrote the book of Revelation. And at the beginning of his gospel, he says this, in the beginning was the reason for everything. The Greek word is logos. He was with God in the beginning and he was God. A few verses, he said, without him, nothing came into existence that was. Everything depends on him for life and all life flows from him. And without him, there can't be life. And if you were reading it in the early days, you'd be thinking, who is he talking about? What is he talking about? But in John chapter 1, verse 14, he names that Logos. He gives an identity to that reason for everything. He says that word, that Logos became flesh and blood and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory. And he says that that person is Jesus Christ. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews... In chapter 1 of that book, which sets out Jesus being better than everything and everyone else, which is why Christians worship him. I'll come to that in a moment. He started his letter by saying this, God, I learned this in the authorized version, 17th century English. 
God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoken times past unto the fathers through the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us through his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the worlds. There he is again. At the beginning of time, he is the word that speaks life into the creation. At the end of time, he stands saying, I am the beginning and the end. John identifies him like that. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews says, everything depends on him. So it is no surprise then that Christians believe that when the world is wrapped up, when it comes to an end, Jesus Christ will be involved in it. I want to talk to you for 15 or 20 minutes about that reality. Christians call it the second coming. The technical phrase for those that are interested in taking notes or recording is the parousia. It is a moment in time and history when we believe that the whole of the world will come to an end as it exists now. And a new world, a new created order, a new system of things will be ushered in and it will never pass away. And we believe that it is centered around Jesus Christ and his work and his life and his ministry and it affects you and it affects me. That every single human being who has ever lived has to make a decision about what they believe about this Jesus Christ because one day every single human being that has ever or will ever live will stand before him. The one who has ushered time in and brings time to an end will look you in the eye one day and ask you what you've done with your decisions and with your priorities. That should at least cause us to be serious. I want to try and address four questions. Who will return at the end of time if we believe that Jesus Christ will return to the earth? Where will he return? When will he return? And why will he return? See, we believe Christians down through the years have been taught that at a given moment in time and in history, Christ himself will return to the earth. The one who has sustained it, the one who was involved in creating it, will be the one who is involved in ending it. If you have a Bible, again, I'd like you to turn with me to the, to the New Testament, to the book of Acts. I did say that you'd need a Bible this evening. This is the story of what happened about 40 or so days after Jesus Christ had been resurrected. He takes his followers outside Jerusalem and, and he talks to them. And then he ascends. We remember it on something called Ascension Day. And they're stood looking at this Christ who has disappeared from their view. And we're told the two messengers, the Greek word for angel is the same as the Greek word for messenger. But this is what we're told they say to these people that are watching in Acts chapter 1 verse 11. Verse 10 says, while he was going and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two messengers in white robes stood by them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, 
will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This same Jesus will come in the same way as you have seen him go. So let's think for a moment about the question of who will return. I think we have a lot of the answer here in Acts chapter 1. This return will involve Jesus Christ himself. The same one that went is coming back. The scriptures are clear. And we're told even more than that. If you look at it carefully, it will be he will return to the same spot that he left from. That's a spot just outside the city of Jerusalem. His feet will touch that place. It will be physical. It will be visible. And it will be personal. Christ will return. The same one that went is coming back again. Now, turn backwards in your Bibles to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. Chapter 14. Jesus is helping his disciples to prepare for his death. And he wants them to be encouraged and comforted and strengthened. And in John chapter 14, it's sometimes called the farewell discourse. John 14, 15 16 and 17, we read these words from verse 1 down to verse 7. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there were many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the place? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus promised his followers that he would come back for them. He made a personal promise to these men and women that were his friends and his disciples. He told them that he was going to prepare a place and that he would return. So the first two questions that I asked and wanted to address, who will return? At the end of time, who will wrap it up? Jesus Christ will wrap it up. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the one who spoke existence into being and has held existence, existence in being for all of time will bring it to an end at the end of time, which is an entirely consistent perspective given that he's the one that has held it all the way through. He will return. Where will he return? He will return to a place in Jerusalem just outside the city near the Mount of Olives. And it will be a personal, physical, and visible return. What about when will he return? I tell you, I've heard some weird sermons about this. People calculating dates. Martin Luther thought he was going to return in 1585. He got it wrong. Charles Wesley thought he was going to return in 1784. He got it wrong. Do anybody remember David Ives? That really odd shell suit wearing British journalist. He predicted that Jesus would return and he got it wrong. Again and again down through the years, men and women have predicted dates 
They've been caught up with working out the time and the hour and the moment when Jesus' return will happen. It's not a good thing to do. Now, you might be disappointed, but I'm not going to give you a date. You might think I'm a good preacher, but I'm not that good a preacher. I'm not going to point to you to a specific time or a moment, but I am going to help you to understand some of this as much as I can. And to do that, I want you to come back with me to Matthew chapter 24. You see, here's why I think this is important. When I was converted, when I became a Christian, I heard quite a lot of teaching on the second coming of Jesus. And I love it. It excites me. It gets me energized. It, 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 it gets my blood boiling as I think about it, as I, as I reflect on it. It does something in my soul, not just because I'm a nosy parker, but because it feeds something of anticipation in me. It reminds me that my life isn't the end of the story. If I die and Jesus Christ hasn't returned, and that is highly probable, and it's certainly possible, I will die believing that he could return the following day. It's an important thing. But over the last 30 odd years, I've been a Christian 32 years. Can you believe it? I don't even look as if I'm 21. (laughs) You missed the chance to bless me and I'm so disappointed. It's become less popular. I think when you get married and you have children, you start to think, well, I'd quite like to see them married. I'd quite like to see grandchildren. I'd quite like to see this happening and that happening. And something happens in the life of a believer the longer they're a Christian. They get a little bit settled. We all do. And then we begin to think, well, if Christ was to come back, I made a joke of it this morning, I hope he doesn't come back until. We lose our edge. We lose our anticipation. We lose our excitement and our energy about it. The early church was full of this expectation. So much so that in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stood up to tell people in Jerusalem what had happened when they'd heard people speaking in languages that they had never heard before, he said this, this is to fulfill what what was promised in the last days. He wrote two general letters. In one of them, in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 of 1 Peter, he talks about these last days. The phrase that I read from Hebrews chapter 1 about 10, 15 minutes ago said, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners has spoke in times past unto the fathers through the prophets has in these last days. There is an expectation in the early church and throughout the New Testament, that Jesus would come soon. Some people think that they got into a state because he didn't. I don't at all. I think they simply lived with a readiness for his return because they had been taught that he could return at any moment. They were energized by it. It's what has driven missionaries around the world. It's great to have with us here this evening Chris Jones, the previous Elam missions director um, across the world, and he's joining us this evening in the service. It's lovely to see him. Mission has been fueled and and, and enabled and impassioned by the sense of conviction that we must reach the world because Christ is coming back. Lives are changed. Um, Evangelistic strategies are birthed because people who have been Christians down through the centuries have believed Jesus will come back. And we want to do our part 
to be ready for him coming back. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus Christ will return physically to the earth and that we must do everything we can to be ready for that moment. Now turn in your Bibles as we start to unpack when he will return in broad terms to Matthew chapter 24. Verses 1 and 2 say, As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Then he asked them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, Beware that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. When will he return? His disciples asked him then, and his disciples are asking him still. Now, as you read through all of Matthew chapter 24, and I don't have the time to unpack it all to you, I might do that in a series next year or the year after. You get these broad brushstrokes, but they're really important, and they're very inspiring and very challenging. The first is from the first two verses, where Jesus says to them, you see these temple buildings, these bricks, they're not even going to stay standing. That was said around about AD 30. Forty years later, Nero, the Roman emperor, was attacking again the area of the Middle East that we now call Israel. And he sent his general, Vespasian, who would become an emperor, into the city. And Vespasian was told that he was to take the gold from the temple. There was so much in it that he was to take the gold from the temple. They set the temple on fire, and the gold melted, and it melted through the cracks in the stones. So Vespasian told them to dismantle the temple brick by brick. And that's exactly what they did. What Jesus said in AD 30 happened in AD 70. The temple was dismantled brick by brick so that the Roman authorities could get into the gold that was there. So whatever else happens toward the end of time, that bit of this fulfillment has already happened. It's already taken place. Then in verses 3 down to 8, you have a whole list of things that we are told will happen, but they don't signal the end. They only signal the beginning of the end. False messiahs in verse 4 and 5. Wars and rumors of wars in verse 6. Nation rising against nation in verse 7. Famines and earthquakes in verse 7. But he says in verse 8 to his disciples, all this is but the beginning of birth pangs. Since the 1st of January 1900, there hasn't been a second in global history where there hasn't been a conflict happening somewhere in the world. Wars and rumors of wars. Everywhere you go. 1918, my uncle was born at 11 a.m. on the 11th of November, 1918. The moment the armistice of the war to end all wars was signed. But it wasn't the war to end all wars. In the weeks that followed that war, 
um, there was conflict immediately broke out in the Balkans. We put a bottle on the top of it, hoping that we would sort it out. The treaties of Versailles and Saint-Germain and Trieste and so forth brought some level of peace, but not enough. Germany felt as if they were being manipulated and controlled and squeezed. So it only took 15 years for a fascist regime to rise in Germany. By 1936, the Spanish Civil War had broken out. Then in 1939, the Second World War began. Then in 1947 through to 48, Israel was birthed. And there was another war. Then in the 1950s, there was the Korean War. In the 1960s was the Vietnam War. In the 1970s was the war in Afghanistan between Russian troops and nationals. In the 1980s, we had the, the second Afghanistan invasion. In the 1990s, we've had um, Desert Storm. In the year 2000, we had Desert Storm two since 2010 through to 2018 we've seen the war on terror we've seen the Balkans erupt we've seen Sarajevo destroyed we've seen Chad devastated by war we've seen Nigeria devastated by war we've seen South Sudan and North Sudan killing one another everywhere you look across the world there is conflict based on nation states fighting with nation states it's getting worse not better we believe that Jesus told us that it would get worse that he warned us that we'd get worse. Look at the earthquakes and the famines that we have seen happening across the earth. Who would ever have thought that Kobe would be devastated again? Whoever can forget those um, remarkable scenes from 1981 from the British journalist Michael Burke reporting from Ethiopia that led to live aid in the mid-1980s and all of the awareness raising of that. And yet as we speak, it's happening again across sub-Saharan Africa. Who would have thought that the misery and the pain and the heartbreak and the devastation and the starvation that the Rohingya are going through or refugees that are, going, uh, that are being translated from one place to another would have happened even 20 years ago. And now the United Nations says that the biggest issue in the world for the next 50 years on a geopolitical level will be the migration of people. And what we do, because our nations aren't big enough to sustain them, we're told. There isn't the political will to have a conversation. Here in Northern Ireland, there's, a, there's anxiety about what will happen with this little 300-mile stretch of land between the Republic and here. Let me tell you something. That little 300-mile stretch of land is going to become the focus of world politics and discussion for the next 20 years. Whether you and I like it or not, Living in Northern Ireland, it is one of the reasons I am back. You are living in the eye of a political storm. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, particularly you guys that are younger, you're going to have to lead us into a different kind of thinking. You're going to have to show the world that Christians are compassionate and caring and loving and gracious, and yet we also stand for truth and righteousness. We have a mission opportunity on our doorstep. The whole world is going to look at what happens along that border. Go to the Mexican border, a border I know very well because I lived in Mexico for a year and went backwards and forwards across into San Diego many times. And that's the area that President Trump is wanting to build a wall. Many in America feel threatened by what's happening with immigration. They, they don't hear the noise that we hear. What they hear is they're worried about the future of their country. And they're trying to work out what it will look like. And that's going to a, become a bigger and a bigger and a bigger issue 
Angela Merkel put her political career on the line over this. The new Italian prime minister has taken a hard line on it. The Hungarian prime minister is taking a hard line on it. The French are beginning to take a hard line on it. The British government is taking a hard line on it. All across Europe, this issue is rising. It's also rising in Vietnam and Laos and China and South Korea and North Korea. And yet it's not the end. It's just the beginning of birth pangs. It's an indication that this world cannot sustain everything that's happening on it. The plastics in our oceans, the starvation in our planet, the lack of water, which means that 25% of water drank in Australia now has already been drunk by a person at least twice. Yuck. A hosepipe ban in Northern Ireland. Goodness sake. Can you believe Don't start me. It's all the beginning of the end. From verses 9 through to 14, Jesus takes them a step further and he says, here's what else is going to happen before the end. Persecution. Christians will be mocked, laughed at, rejected, sidelined, marginalized. Many will fall away. Lawlessness will increase. There'll be a sense of a loss of morality. He picks it up. As he talks about the days of Noah, everything's right. As long as it works for you, it's morally acceptable. And in verse 14, we are told that the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world. All of those things are happening. We're seeing them happen around us. From satellite television to radio, to printed matter, to the internet. We're seeing the gospel shared across nations where it could never have been shared before. Not very long ago, an organization I lead called Spring Harvest was trying to work out how we could get Bibles into North Korea. So we took an offering one year in our event and raised about a quarter of a million pounds. And part of that money went to buying 150,000 Bibles and 150,000 very large helium balloons. And we took them to the edge of North Korea and we waited until we knew that there was going to be a wind that would be heading north for several days and we let them go. 150,000 scriptures landing in villages and towns across North Korea tied to a helium balloon. You might think that's stupid. Thousands of people have become Christians as a result of that. Every night of my life for the last two years, I've written a little night blessing. 288 characters. I share it on Facebook. 400,000 people a night read it. To, to date, around about 15 or 20,000 people have become Christians through it. I wrote a little book three years ago called 40 Days with Jesus. It's the one that we give to people that become Christians here. To date, around 16 or 17,000 people have become Christians through reading this little book. The gospel is being shared in ways that we never understood, that we could never think was possible. It's the most amazing, life-giving, true thing. And yet it's part of a sign that the end of the age is coming. We know that being a Christian is difficult. We know that we're seeing Christians falling away. We're seeing theology weakened. We're seeing the Bible moved to the side. We're seeing a belief in Jesus being watered down. We're seeing morality being redefined. We're seeing principles of ethics and life being written over again so that it's all easier and all laxer. And it's all a sign that we are entering into the end of the age. Now in Matthew chapter 24 verses 15 through to 28... 
Jesus describes something called the abomination of desolation or the desolating sacrifice. It's a complicated passage. And I want to read it to you and then try and explain it a little. Verse 15. So when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place, as was spoken by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Someone on the housetop must not go down to take what is in the house. Someone in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be great suffering, such as has never been seen from the beginning of the world until now, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce great signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you beforehand. So if you are to say, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's complicated, difficult. The desolating sacrifice, the abomination of desolation, Jesus tells them is mentioned in Daniel. That's the book of Daniel. And if you're taking notes, it's mentioned in Daniel 9, 27, Daniel 11, 31, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. It's also mentioned in chapter 8 of the book of Mark and chapter 21 of the book of Luke. But here's the interesting thing. Between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there were a group that rose in Jewish history, and it became known as the Maccabean Revolt. I know this sounds boring, but it really isn't. And one of the leaders of it was a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. You can read about him in books that are called the, um, the Apocrypha. They're not the Bible, but they're helpful. And there's two of them called First and Second Maccabees. And they tell you the story of what happened in the temple in Jerusalem, which Jesus was talking about here, in the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So that would have been before he said this. You will know that Jews take it very seriously that the temple was protected and sacred. And one of their principles is that pork and pig flesh is not to be touched. Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to destroy the Jewish nation. So he carried pigs into the temple and had them slaughtered in the Holy of Holies and in the temple and their blood smeared on everything that he could. And as he did, he told them, this is an abomination of this place. This is an abomination of desolation. He used this phrase. Not only did he do that, but in the very center of the temple, he commanded that a new altar be built. And that altar was not to Jehovah, the God of Scripture, not to Yahweh, the God of the Jews. It was to the God Zeus. It was the height of insult to Jewish people. It was the deepest and most profound profanity and desolation and desecration of their holy place. Jesus talks about it. But that was before here. That was before these words were written. And we know from other places in the Bible that what the Bible points to is that once again, somehow Jerusalem will be desecrated. There will be an offensiveness about what happens in the Middle East. 
An insult to the God of the Jewish people. An insult to the God of Christians. An attempt to remove his memory from the streets of Jerusalem and from the area around the Temple Mount. An opportunity, whatever can happen, to somehow say Christianity has no part here. Christ has no place here. Aren't we seeing that right now? Are we seeing this attempt to remove any indication of Christianity and Christ and his purpose and his faithfulness from history in the Middle East? Aren't we seeing the Jewish people under a similar attack? I'm not suggesting by any manner that the state of Israel can do no wrong, by the way. That's a separate issue. Don't for one minute assume that the state of Israel equates to the Israel of the Bible. That's narrow-minded Zionism that assumes that God will bless anything that a nation does. That's not true. He doesn't bless the slaughter of innocent people. He doesn't bless mortar bombs being launched into the Lebanon. He doesn't bless starving men, women, and children. That's not what God does. Yet somehow he has decided that in this little patch of ground called Jerusalem, much of what the world's history depends upon will be worked out there. This desolating sacrifice is mentioned in Revelation chapter 13 verse 5 is rising again in the Middle East. Somehow sometimes called the Antichrist or someone who stands in place of Christ. It's a force, a power, a system, a worldview that says you don't need Christianity. You don't need Christ. You don't need God. You don't need trust. You don't need faith. You don't need grace. You don't need any of that. Now I'm only 47, but I have never experienced a world which is more godless than the world that I live in today. I've never seen more ridicule of Christianity. I've never seen Christianity decried more, laughed at more, mocked more, sidelined more, marginalized more. And as we approach the end of time, that will get worse. We will be laughed at and mocked and ridiculed and martyred for being Christians. Not too long ago, I went to see somebody in uh, North Korea. I was smuggled in to help do something with him to try and save his life. I appeared before a court, and I was told that the minute the case left, I had to leave, surrounded by 32 soldiers. I was picked up and carried out of the courtroom, taken to the airport, put on a plane. And I was convinced that my testimony and my work would help save this man. He was murdered. He was still murdered because he would not decry or deny the name of Jesus Christ. As we approach the end of time, it will become harder to be a Christian, not easier. We will have to make a decision about whether we will stand for God. I'm not only talking about cases involving purchases of goods or the selling of confectionery or cakes, as serious as they are. I'm talking about whether you'll be willing to die for your faith. Whether you'll be willing to count the cost for your faith whether you'll let people send you to jail, whether you'll lose a promotion, whether you'll be sidelined and marginalized and laughed at for your faith. All of this will happen before Christ returns. In verses 29 to 35, as I draw all of this to a close, we're told that the coming of Jesus Christ will be sudden, instant, and unexpected. Like a thief in the night. Two, feet, two people working in a field, one gone, the other staying. 
I've answered the question of when he will return as best I can. If you ask me to put a date on it, I can't. But surely the world cannot be sustained for very much longer. Two, three, four, five generations. Maybe a hundred years, maybe 200, maybe 300. But he will return. And my advice to you would be, live as if it could be tomorrow. Because that's the advice that Jesus gave his disciples 2,000 years ago. And if 2,000 years have passed, then it's 2,000 years closer than it was then. I have a friend who's a pastor 17 years ago. His son died. His, he and his wife put on their Facebook account today, it was his birthday, remembering Simon and thanking God that we're 17 years closer to seeing him again. Well, we're 2,000 years closer to Christ's return. That's a lot of years. And so I come to my last question, why will he return? And I bring you to the passage that I read at the beginning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Christ will return to wrap up time and history. He will return to do two things. To finally establish visibly and experientially his kingdom forever. And to separate the goats and the sheep. Those who have trusted him will spend eternity with him. Whether the label that they have on their theology is Protestant or Catholic, Presbyterian or Anglican. I once heard somebody say, clearly they were a Baptist. You don't have to be a Baptist to get to heaven, but why take the risk? <laughs> I don't care what the label is in your life, nor does God, but he does care who resides in your heart. And if Christ doesn't reside there, then when he returns, whether you are alive or dead, you will not dodge that moment. It will be the greatest event in history after the birth of Jesus Christ. And you will stare into the face of Almighty God. So whether this happens in 5,000 years, 4,000 years, or 40 years, you will stand before Almighty God. Every one of you. I will too. And what will determine my eternal state is whether I have accepted Jesus Christ or rejected him. Not how many times I've gone to church. Not what version of the Bible I read. Not what creed I learned. Not what liturgies I used. Not what songs I sung. Not how much I gave. Not how much I prayed. Not how much I read the Bible. None of that will determine your eternal state. The Bible describes the return of Christ and his purpose in two different ways. The first is terrible. It's a dark, fearful day of judgment full of clouds and billows of smoke and fire and fear and anxiety and separation and sorrow and regret and pain and loss. The second is a day of celebration and joy and hope and peace and rest and eternal security and expectation and freedom and fulfillment. He's coming to establish which one of those camps you're in. And only you can make that decision. If I could, I will lift you up and carry you into the camp that says, I know him. 
I have family members that have died and I don't know what decision they made about this. It's a terrible situation to be in. To not know whether your loved ones have surrendered to Christ or not. For years after it happened, it ate me up every day. Tell me, Lord. Tell me. I want to know. I need to know. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? What decision did he make? But in the end, I don't get to know that. And that's God's business and not mine. But I can tell you that every one of my loved ones knew that Jesus Christ loved them, died for them, rose again for them, and wanted to welcome him, them into his kingdom. And they got to make the choice. You get to make the choice. So make it. But Malcolm, there's things in my life that need to get sorted out. Do you not think there are things in my life that need to get sorted out? There are questions that I haven't got answers to. I've got more. There are things I'm uncertain about. Join the club. How long will this take to work out? Forever. But here is the question that you must answer. When Christ returns, what will you say to him? You are my Lord, or I was never interested in you. I never wanted to know you. I didn't want to be churchy. Thank goodness for that. Churchy people are a pain in somewhere. But this return brings comfort and hope and courage to those who trust Christ. Because we will be reunited with those who have trusted him. We will be together forever. There is hope in our hearts because of what he has done. You're probably not going to hear this tonight. But I wonder how many of you remember playing hide and seek. Anybody ever played hide and seek? Do you remember what you used to do? You have to count the 100. And you were the one that was on. Everybody ran and hid. Here's the way I played it anyway. One, two, miss a few. 99, 100. And then what did I say? Pardon? Here I come. Ready or not. That's what you're going to hear one day. But it won't be a children's game. Here I come. Ready or not. And he will find you. And you will answer the question. So answer it tonight. Please. Answer it here. Answer it online before you turn your computer off. I'm not asking you to join Dundonald Elam. I'm asking you to be able to answer the question. I know you. I've surrendered to you. And I kneel before you. Would you close your eyes with me in prayer?
Here I come, ready or not. If you're watching online or you're here in the room, I'm going to pray a prayer for those that would like to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ for the first time. Pray it with me. Lord, I come to you and I ask you to accept me as I am. I surrender my life to you. I give you my past. I give you my questions. I give you my doubts. I give you my fear. I give you my anxiety. I give you my failures and my mistakes. And I recognize that when your son died, he died for me. And when he returns, I want him to return for me. Help me to live for you for the rest of my life. If you are returning to Jesus Christ, you've walked with him and wandered away, but tonight you want to stop playing games. You want to follow him. Then again, online or in the room, pray with me. Thank you for your patience with me, Lord. I'm sorry that I've wandered away. I ask you to take me as I am and direct me according to your plans and your purposes. I'm turning away from everything else that has been a distraction. And I'm following you. Now, whilst you remain in prayer, if you are watching online and you have prayed either of those prayers, if you're under 21, please drop an email to my colleague, Davy. His email is davy at dundonaldelam.church. If you're over 21 and you've made a decision tonight online, then please contact Pip, my other colleague. His email is the same, but with the name Pip instead of Davy. Pip at dundonaldelam.church. They'll be in touch with you. They'll give you literature. We're not going to hound you, but we'll pray for you and offer you whatever support we can. Here in the room, I want to give all of you a chance to make a response to what you've heard. If I could carry you into the kingdom, I would. So my first question is to those who once walked with Christ, and tonight you are returning to him. If you are recommitting your life to Jesus Christ, I want to give you the opportunity to have a line in the sand that says you did it on the 1st of July, 2018. Nobody else is looking, just me. Just put your hand up and then take it down again, please. doesn't matter what age you are or where you're from or you're, whether you're part of Dundonald or not. Thank you so much. Is there anyone else? My second question is to those of you that have never yet surrendered your life to Christ. 
I'm not asking you to join our church family. I'm asking you to join Christ's family and be my brother. Become my sister. If you'd like to become a Christian this evening, then please put your hand up now. This is no one else's business. But you will face God and he will say, you heard. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy at work in the lives of your people. And we pray tonight in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that you will bless those that have made a response. That in their hearts they would know peace and a fresh start and grace and joy and hope. That you would surround them with your love and with your mercy. And that they would know that they are accepted by you. And for all who are on the brink of that decision, as so many have made it in the last seven or eight weeks, let them make it tonight. In the days that lie ahead, I have cast my bread upon the waters. I look to you, Lord, to let it return. Let your seed bear fruit. Let it find good soil and may lives be transformed as a result. Here and via the internet across the world. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to talk to somebody about the decision that you've made this evening, then Pip, who um, is sitting just down here with the, uh, the pink shirt on, my colleague, for those of you that are guests, will be here or at the reception desk at the front. If you're under 21, then Davy, who's been leading the meeting, will be there too. There are gray envelopes, there are brown envelopes, A5 envelopes, that contain information about first steps of Christian faith. I'm aware that not everybody puts their hands up in meetings. That's fine. I'm not remotely concerned about that. If you want to begin this journey and you want it to be discreet and you don't want anybody to know and you don't, you're, you're a bit anxious about being bombarded with questions and people, take one of the envelopes from the, the glass shelf at the reception desk. Just take it away. And may God help you with it. If you don't want anybody to see you taking it, just kind of put your coat around it. <laughs> put it in your bag like that. You're very welcome to take it. And if you're making a decision to begin to follow Christ tonight, may God richly, richly bless you.